Good morning. So welcome to the pajama people and to the wine and order wine and cheese people who are watching. And thanks to William and Olivia for doing that. And to all of you, the cookie bringers and announcement givers and all of that. No matter who you are, no matter where you are on your spiritual journey, you are welcome here. So one of my uh, hopes for these times that we spend together because, and I do value the precious time of your life that you take to spend here, one of my hopes is that we continue to focus on what it means to grow. Growth in our ability to be present to presence is what gives meaning to our lives, and I think that it is our primary purpose on this planet. Once we have met the survival needs, which everybody in this room has done, then we're free to devote ourselves to what it means to grow in those aspects of freedom and love and peace and joy and, and um, acceptance, the things that mark us, the values that mark us on our spiritual journey. I hope we grow in ways that we learn to see ourselves better and each other and the planet and all who are on the planet. My contention is, as you know, that if we don't take conscious control of this ongoing learning process, the culture out there will take charge of it for us. And when that happens, we fall victim to consumerism, uh, which is the religion of our culture, and we absorb, consciously or unconsciously, the messages that the various media continually bombard us with. When I first came away from reading the conversations between the Dalai Lama and Desmond Tutu, which are chronicled in this book, The Book of Joy, I was renewed in my conviction that if we could just get it through our thick skulls, apparently thick skulls, that we are actually brothers and sisters to each other, that we are members of the same family, that maybe we'd start doing, stop doing such horrible things to each other and, and doing them out of what we think are the most righteous motives possible. So their conversation convinced me that good education is the remedy for what ails us. Now, I hope you know that I am not talking about education in the sense of public education as we normally think of education. <clears throat> the fact is that our public education system, except in a few places that are protected by privilege, is in shambles. And it has never made sense to me that teachers in our public school system are among the lowest paid people in our system. I think they should be paid as much as the top managers of Fortune 500 companies. And their profession should be as respected as that of doctors. You know, there is a saying, even in our culture, that our future is our children. And yet we don't act like that when it comes to public education. 
we are not equipping the majority of our young people to step into places of leadership in, in the years ahead or to do so with the cognitive, intellectual, and moral skills that we would hope for our next generation of leaders and, and for those whom they lead. I'm certainly not in any way discounting or dismissing the importance of that kind of education, but I'm talking about something more, something other. I'm talking about the growth and development in religious and spiritual development and, and enlightenment because the lack of this education is what ails us. And this education is our greatest challenge. How do we awaken our hearts to understanding, affirming, embracing who we truly are, not just at the head level, but at the heart level, at the real practical level. If we can't or don't or won't do it inside our own lives, we can't do it anywhere else. Certainly in these talks, I do want to inform, but more I want to awaken. And what I'm coming more and more to see is that the kind of education I'm talking about is not so much a matter of cramming information, though there is certainly some, something important about knowing facts and information, but it's a matter of drawing out. <coughs> it's a matter of bringing to birth what is already in you. Leo Tolstoy, whose book War and Peace is generally considered the greatest novel ever written, said, I cannot imagine what else a teacher would do except to remind people of their capacity for the infinite. And he went on to say, an idea becomes truly comprehensible only when we are aware of it in our souls, when it gives us the feeling that we know it already and we're simply recalling it. This is how I felt when I first read the Gospels. It seems all so familiar. It seemed that I had known it all along, that I had only forgotten it. By the way, you may not be aware of the fact that Tolstoy also wrote a Jesus narrative, a gospel of Jesus. Did you know that? And, and uh, I, I keep forgetting. I want to bring that up and talk about it sometime in the weeks ahead. Maybe we can do that. Speak of us of God, the cherry tree was asked. And the cherry tree blossomed. Now, the mystics I have read, the depth psychologists that I have studied, my own faith all are, are all leading me to say that it was for this moment that we were created. What we do with this, of course, is our individual responsibility. By being present to presence, and I got this phrase from Richard Rohr, we become who we are. Speak of us of God, the cherry tree was asked, and the cherry tree blossomed. Now, this deep understanding of education is a challenge, but again, if we don't do it, if we're not open to it, we will fall for the lies of the culture. 
and we will treat others in the world as objects to be used or rejected or whatever it is that we regard as not part of us. So look at what goes on in organized religion, both Catholic and non. There is a, a, a clinging to a medieval understanding of the universe. The, the majority of Christians, or people who call themselves Christians, still believe that there is some idealized state um, in the creation back there somewhere and that humans fell from that state of innocence into such a state of hopeless sin that some God above had to send his son and kill that child to somehow make things right. I call this divine child abuse. <laughs> and this is the past that is not true. This is the past that we must leave behind. We must think, believe, and behave in new ways about everything. Last week, Holly and I shared with you, um, thanks to Edward Harris, a brief video that showed the demographics of religion and how religion has changed globally over the last 50 years or so. Uh, 50 years ago, the majority of people on the planet who claimed any kind of religious affiliation were overwhelmingly Roman Catholic. Sunni Islam was eighth down on the list. Today, the Islamic religion is, Sunni Islam is the fastest growing religion on the planet. And the prediction is that it will soon be the largest on the planet, if it is in many places. And the Christian, both Catholic and non-Catholic, will be rated third and fourth, respectively, on the list. Hinduism, second, and Buddhism, fifth. Now, several people asked me after last week, what, how do you account for the growth of Islam? And uh, I think there are many things that account for it. Population, for one thing. Um, people um, have more children in the demographic of Islamic people, and they're concentrated um, in, in geographical areas. Um, that's not the only reason. The Islamic faith are very clear about their faith. They're very clear about their practices. Uh, they are a welcoming people. They embrace those who embrace them. Um, and for somebody who practices the Islamic religion, it's clear that they do. You can tell that they do. For example, if you were Islamic and you prayed, if you found time to pray five times a day, people would notice. And they'd ask you about it. They'd engage you in conversations about it. And uh, the same thing for practicing Ramadan. If you fasted during that period of time, people would notice and they would talk to you about it and you would talk to them. Religions are caught more than taught. Now, I do not mean this in any critical way and I know it does not apply to any person in this room. <laughs> but a lot of Christians are rather mindless about their faith. They're really religiously illiterate about their faith. I have a number of friends who are Jewish, and they will tell me that openly, um, that they're Jewish. And they will also tell me, many of them, that they're secular Jews. Now, what they mean by that when they say that is that they do not practice their Jewish faith. 
And, and uh, I was thinking, you know, that we, we have Orthodox Jews and conservative Jews, Reformed Jews. Reformed Jews are kind of like Southern Baptists in that they are fractured into a lot of different, different parts. I'd say the same thing about many people who are Buddhist, that they're secular Jew, uh, Buddhist. When the horrible ethnic cleansing came to light in Myanmar, a number of people asked me because of my frequent references to Buddhism and my own Buddhist practice, how in the world could Buddhists behave like that? Well, don't idealize Buddhism. Not every Buddhist is like the Dalai Lama or Thich Nhat Hanh or Pima Chodron. There are many Buddhists who are what I would call secular Buddhists. They live in a Buddhist culture. They have some Buddhist ways of dressing and behaving, but they don't practice Buddhism. So with many people who call themselves Christian, they will check the box on the census form that says Christian, but, and again, I'm not being critical, they couldn't tell you really what that means. What does it mean to be Christian? Well, I believe in Jesus. Okay, what does that mean? Well, if I believe in Jesus, then I will go to heaven when I die? I think. How do you do that, believing in Jesus? How does that affect your life? How does it show up in your daily practice? How does it inform and guide you in what you do? So there are people who believe that, that believing in Jesus will get them to a place called heaven when they die. But these same people cannot name the first four books of the New Testament. Now one would think that being Christian, at least part of it, would be to have at least some basic familiarity with the foundation document of your religion. Just this week, somebody sent me a piece that's circulating on the email circuit. You've probably seen it. It's called The Bible Versus the Cell Phone. And it came, contained a number of questions. What would happen if we treated our Bible like we treat our cell phone? What if we carried it around in our purses or pockets? What if we looked at it several times a day to see if it had a message for us? What if we went back into the house to get it if we realized we'd left it at home? What if we treated it like we couldn't live without it? Now, I've had a tendency to avoid this sort of thing because of those people who treat the Bible as if it were a paper pope. But there is something to be said about knowing what's in the Bible and about how we relate to what's in the Bible. That is, if you're going to call yourself a Christian. Because when you get to heaven, you're going to be given a test. <laughs> so there's a mindless way of being a religious person. Now, many people, and again, I'm going to be clear, this does not apply to any of you. Use religion as a in-case-of-an-emergency thing. Several years ago, we were in San Antonio, and I went to an art gallery, and I found this piece of art, which I just had to have, which my wife didn't support. <laughs> I just love this piece. It's, it's um, hanging in our guest bedroom. 
And there's a, a, I don't know if you can see, but the artist who constructed it uh, put what is supposed to be a little hammer right here. It's a little, it's a wall clip, actually. So there's a Virgin Mary in the glass. And the caption saying, in case of emergency, break glass. <clears throat> oh, God, if you just give me that parking place. It just makes sure that Mary survives this one. If I don't get fired. Martin Buber, the Jewish philosopher who's best known for his teaching about the I-thou relationship in contrast to the I-it relationship, uh, that we can so easily fall into relating to others as I-it. Once wrote, nothing hides the face of God better than religion. That's Martin Buber. The fact is that everything in our faith, now I'm speaking now from the context of Christian faith, our churches, our sacraments, our doctrines, our scriptures, our special orders by means of ordination, they're all secondary and, and never ends in themselves. All of these things are fingers pointing to the moon. They are not the moon itself. We must, in navigating this territory between the no longer and the not yet, wise up to the new narrative evolution is seeking to teach us. Our world is facing enormous moral challenges. One of the reasons, I believe, is that most religions have stressed what one philosopher I have read labels as cosmological dualism and individual salvation. I'll come back to those. Now, that's currently true of the Christianity that most of us have been exposed to. These two things encourage an attitude of indifference toward the health and healing, not only of our social systems in which we live, but our relationship to and our regard for the earth and all the people who inhabit the earth. So I'm going to start this down this road today, and we're going to continue this over the next four weeks. But I want to begin to mention two roadblocks that are on the way, on the, on the road to enlightenment. And, and though they are in some ways inseparable, they are also distinct. And the first one, as I said, is what this philosopher called cosmological dualism. Now, well, you've heard dualism a lot from me, but this is different. This is bigger, bigger kind of understanding of dualism. But one of the implications of cosmological dualism is that there's another world besides this one. That's dualistic thinking. And there's not a person in this room who didn't grow up being affected by that in some way. I sure got taught it growing up. This world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. The angels beckon me from heaven's open door, and I can't feel at home in this world anymore. Oh, Lord, you know. <laughs> I have no friend like you. 
If heaven's not my home, then Lord, what will I do? The angels beckon me from heaven's open door, and I can't feel at home in this world anymore. And if you don't, you're lost as hell. Do you understand what I'm saying? This is the only home we got. If we're here, and if you're not here, you're not in the kingdom because that's where the kingdom is. Cosmological dualism is a roadblock to enlightenment. Non-dual mind, which really cannot be communicated, it really communicates itself. You can see that non-dual mind in the, the quote that uh, I've, I love from Meister Eckhart that says, the eye with which God sees me is the eye with which I see God. That's, that's a, a non-dual concept, but it's in a dualistic framework. That makes sense? I'm talking about cosmological dualism, stepping out of cosmological dualism. We'll come back to that. I want to introduce it to you. The other roadblock on the, the Enlightenment Highway is the notion of individual salvation. And I'm coming more and more to believe that the great spiritual imperative of our time is understanding and overcoming the growing and pervasive narcissism of our time. We have to bring both awareness and compassion to this matter. And it's going to mean having some tough conversations with ourselves. And some tough conversations with the world. Now, I'm just introducing these two roadblocks today. We will come back and elaborate on them in the future. So as important, even crucial, as I think religious literacy is, it's even more important I would say urgent, that we move beyond religious illiteracy to the matter of spiritual literacy, especially in regard to this guy. I have spent years in here dealing with biblical and religious literacy, Jesus of history issues, and I'm sure that to some degree we will continue that. It will be unavoidable. Indeed, we're going to do some of that today before we're done. I'm saying that I think we need to move on to deal with what the, the matter that I'm calling spiritual literacy, especially regarding Jesus. What might it look like for us really to follow Jesus? How can we embody the teaching of Jesus. You know, Jesus had a way of loving people, of setting people free, of giving life. How can we reclaim that? What would it mean for us to bring our own lives into alignment with Jesus in practical day-to-day -day living? What would it mean for us to model our lives after this dark-skinned, African, there was no Middle East at the time, who was unafraid to sit with others who were considered by the society unacceptable, who was unwilling to be owned and controlled by the system, who was free to reach out to the friendless and the needy. 
Now, whatever else you can say about Jesus, he did not bless the status quo. And my fear is that a church that does that is not very long, far along on the path of following him. So what blocks us are these things that I'm talking about, cosmological dualism and individual salvation. One of the things that I have valued in my relationship with Richard Rohr over the years is, is in his insistence on our learning how to see. And one of his favorite phrases is that the church has told people what to see, not how to see. And I dare say that most of us are probably not even aware of the worldview that we have to interpret the world. We all have one. Everybody in this room has a worldview. Our worldview is not what we look at. Our worldview is how we see. It's what we look through. And we usually take it for granted because it's unconscious. But it determines what we see and what we don't see. There's no such thing as an unbiased worldview. I, for example, my default mode is to see the world through the lens of being a white, privileged male in American culture. That's how I grew up. It's just default, it's automatic. I'm not Asian. I'm not African-American. I'm not Native American. I'm not female. I grew up <clears throat> in a part of the country where, to this day, there are Civil War reenactments. It's as if the South didn't lose the war. Get over it. Now, the worldview that predominates our culture is the one that Rohr calls the material worldview. There's nothing wrong with this worldview, and there's nothing right about it either. It just is. So in this worldview, it's the visible universe that is what is real. This world has, worldview has given us so many wonderful things that it's come to be believed as a really only useful, viable worldview. It's highly consumer-oriented. It's highly competitive. It's preoccupied with, with um, getting and holding on to and being better than. Now, as you might expect, there's a counter-worldview to this, which is called the spiritual worldview. And um, I'm, I'm saying this without any embarrassment, but I used to teach out of this worldview. And hopefully I've moved beyond it. But when I first started teaching here at St. Paul in the 80s and on, I taught out of this spiritual worldview. Know the name of the class? Mind and Spirit. And it was as if there was a split between mind and spirit, and our job was to get them back together. That's what I said religion meant, right? Religious means to rebind, to reunite. And quoted Paul Tillich, whom I still do. Paul Tillich said, the definition of God is that love which seeks to reunite the separated. 
What the new cosmology is telling us is things have never been separated. They didn't need to get back together. They need to be recognized as reseen. That's what that word means. Recognition, re-know. They need to be seen as always being one. So the spiritual worldview is still a form of cosmological dualism. Does that make sense, what I'm saying? And I'm being critical of that. And when uh, Holly and I talk, and I might do it before then, I want to say that there is no nonstop flight from the first of these worldviews to the last one. You probably got to go through all of them. So there is another worldview, and, and it's going by a bunch of different names today. It's being called the New Story, the Epic of Evolution, um, Richard Rohr calls it the incarnational worldview. I'm going to call it right now the cosmological worldview. And here's what Rohr says. In this worldview, matter and spirit reveal and manifest each other. This view relies more on awakening than joining, more on seeing than obeying, more on growth in consciousness and love than on clergy experts, morality, scriptures, and rituals. Now, that worldview is seen as a threat to experts on morality, scriptures, clergy, and rituals, right? Now, in the history of the Jesus movement, you will find this worldview, this cosmological worldview, most strongly in early Eastern expressions of Christian faith, what we call the Desert Fathers and Mothers. Um, the icon that I show frequently in here comes from that part of the Christian tradition. Um, the pectoral cross that I wear in the liturgy comes from that, that part of the Christian tradition where dualism didn't exist. In, in the mystics that those people were, now they, they paid a price for it. And when we get into talking about those who are trying to speak about reclaiming Jesus today, you'll see they paid a price for what they, they are doing. But these are the people that I would name in that group. Uh, Ilya Delio is a someone who manifests cosmological worldview. Shane Claiborne gives a manifestation of the, this worldview. Um, Jim Wallace gives a manifestation of this worldview. We're going to talk about Jim Wallace a lot next week. So these are the people who combine um, their religious teaching with intense social action. And uh, um, these are not, this is not my notes, but these people, Richard Rohr, uh, Claiborne, Ilya Delio, all these people that I can name, they are in what I call parachurch organizations. They're not in church organizations, not in ecclesiastical organizations, but they're in, in umbrella organizations that welcome a lot of different faith traditions into them. Now, all of these worldviews have a piece of the truth. They don't have the whole truth. And I want to be clear that the cosmological worldview can be just as partial and consequently wrong 
Someone in the cosmological worldview might say, well, God is in everything and everything is in God. That doesn't necessarily mean that person has made a space in their awareness and their living for this. So that there's a risk that what we're calling the new cosmology um, can be just another belief system, something that's trendy. What this worldview is calling us to do is really to learn to see and love God in all who are and all that is. Now, I don't know about you, but this is a leap of faith I've not yet made. I want to. You can try it out for yourself today. When you leave here and walk by a homeless person in the lot across the street going to your car, see how this wells up in you. You see God in that person. That's the worst definition of a Christian is to see Christ in everything, Christ in everyone. Or just think about your emotional response when you see the Washington Nationals tonight. <laughs> Every person, everything carries the image of God. And to have the faith that this is true carries a direct Social, practical, and immediate implication. This is not just a pleasing ideology. This is a way of life. <clears throat> now, when you look back over um, Christian history, the things the church has fought about, even been divided about, is not this. This is not what the church has fought about. The internal bickering has been about who's right, what scriptures are authoritative, who's in, who's out, what's essential for belief, and so forth. I've, I'm coming to believe that religious people will always fight about non-essentials if they don't know what the essentials are. So what's essential? What is essential is a lived awareness of sacred mystery in loving union with all creation from the beginning. You know, the biggest example of the church bickering has been uh, from the fourth century until right this minute. It's been about the, the Bible, about what has been called the word of God. The word of God began 13.8 billion years ago. And to confine it to this little piece, this infinitesimal speck on the long history of human development is to miss it. Creation is the word of God. So next week, I'm going to hand deliver to you a hard copy of a document called um, Reclaiming Jesus. I'm going to introduce it to you now so that you can go on the website of reclaimingjesus.org and look at a document that was written 
and signed by about 50 church leaders. Um, these are all Christians because this document is about reclaiming Jesus, not God. So Rohr signed this, Jim Wallace signed this, I think Shane Claiborne signed this, a bunch of people that you would have recognized me quoting over the last number of years signed this document. And I want to I have printed it and I will give you a hard copy next Sunday so that we can begin to talk about it. You can have a head start on it by looking at this. And then a couple of Sundays after that, I want to hand deliver to you a hard copy of the Charter for Compassion. Uh, which is largely kicked off by Karen Armstrong. Um, and the animating uh, forces uh, behind these two documents that are seeking to make more relevant the kind of thing that, that I'm talking about. So I thought that, that um, I would, I would kind of end today by giving an example of how doing religion and spiritual work might actually look if we remove these two roadblocks. Okay. Um, <clears throat> let me get Jesus up here. I love this icon. So one of the things that the, the, the Christian church has, uh, both Catholic and non-Catholic, has struggled with over the last number of years is the issue of gender identity and sexual orientation. And um, by the way, I... I I sat at a lunch for the Charter of Compassion a few weeks ago and talked to a filmmaker who works with young people about making film. They're making films. And uh, she said in, in the lunch that um, things that are important to adult religious people are absolutely non-issues to young people. So the issue of gender identity and gender orientation, sexual orientation, is a non-issue for my grandchildren. They don't care. The relevance of that for us is that's one of the reasons that most young people don't want anything to do with church. There is this lie that some idiot thought up, love the sinner but hate the sin? Oh, God, that's so awful. So what do we know about this guy? Well, we know that he was interested in freeing people from bondage. He was interested in assuring everybody that God loved them, right? And he had a really strong set of words, for people who oppressed anybody, for anything. So some of those who are opposed to same-sex unions quote passages from the Bible to bolster their positions, and people who are in um, the kind of the spiritual worldview and have not entered into the kind of cosmological worldview and you don't say that with any kind of superiority, but they, they argue back with these people about the passages that are in the Bible about this issue, and nobody gets anywhere. So if we remove the barriers of cosmological dualism and individual salvation from this discretion, we're free 
to interpret the Bible like Jesus interpreted the scripture of his time. We're free to question whether the position of the Bible on this matter is even correct. Okay, so stay with me. If you read the Bible carefully, you will see in it that slavery is sanctioned. Did you know that? Slavery is sanctioned in the Bible. It's, it's not an issue up for debate. It is sanctioned in the Bible. Nowhere in the Bible is slavery attacked as an unjust system. Nowhere. Check it out. But is there anyone today who is willing to argue that slavery is biblically justified? You know, when the abolitionist movement was just getting going, those who were in favor of outlawing slavery, they couldn't point to the Bible to bolster their position because it is not there. But today, if you were to ask almost anyone if the Bible sanctions slavery, most everyone would say, no, it doesn't, but it does. But today, no one would see it that way because we have a different worldview. And I believe that in a similar way, people 50 years from now are going to look back on this era of the church's history and wonder, how could so-called Christians be so thick-headed and so resistant to this new thing that cosmological evolution is trying to do for us in regard to human sexuality? What happened in the matter of slavery is that churches were finally driven to go deeper. Just like Jesus went deeper into his Jewish prophetic tradition and was able to say to people, you know what, you've heard it said that you should not kill. However, I'm going to tell you, there's another clause to that. This is what enabled Jesus to identify with prostitutes and street people and the diseased and the outsider and the poor. He said, biblical tradition clearly shows God is on the side of the powerless. And what did society create for people who were not heterosexual? You're not welcome. We give you no power. You're on the outside, and the Jesus stance is, we defend those people. Now, the problem for many of us is that we're really not in the demographic that Jesus spoke to, uh, and consequently, I think we sometimes have a difficult time hearing the words of liberation and love that are in the Jesus story. The God of Jesus is about liberating the oppressed. Um, healing the suffering of those who suffer, uh, seeing the reconciliation of, of all, the healing of all divisions. So Jesus goes out of his way to declare unconditional love 
for all who were identified by the culture and religion of his day as sinners. Now, keep in mind that those of the day who were labeled by religion or culture as sinners got those labels because of the accidents of their birth or their economic deprivation, not on moral issues. So it is in light of the compassion that the cosmos is that we are invited to love and care for and be identified with the sufferings of our culture's LBGTQ plus peoples. And of course, the LBGTQ plus issue is just one of the major concerns of our time. How about sexism in the church? I have said that I could solve the Roman Catholic's pedophile problem like this. If they ordain women and let priests marry, it'd be over. But the church doesn't do that because it's sexist. How about racism? We have a huge problem in our culture about race. I don't know if you picked up my gauntlet that I've thrown down asking you to read Sermon to a White America, Tears We Cannot Stop. Read that book. I would read it for you in here, but I fear it would cost me my job. How about patriarchy? How about, how about the insistence on the church that people not grow up? You keep doing what we tell you to do. Just stay in line, okay? How about the insistence on the church that there's something wrong with you? We can fix it. It would help if you tithed. Now, the way out of this is not to deny the Bible, but to develop a way of doing theology that is free to judge and critique even the Scripture in light of Jesus. Jesus, if we can reclaim him, gives us a way to critique all forms of domination. And that way is not a book, it's not a belief, it's not a denomination, it's a person who invites us to be at the forefront of ending and healing any suffering that is caused by any person feeling rejected or who experiences not being fully included in our churches or not being fully protected by the laws of our culture. That's what I got to say, and I'm sticking to it. So no matter where you go this week, no matter what happens, remember this, you carry precious cargo, so watch your step, clear out the back tables so that they can set up the tables and please stay for lunch. And if you want to come chat about today, I'll be right here. <laughs>